Hello and welcome to the Stable Reports podcast. Stable Report is a new site dedicated to curating the best resources related to stablecoin projects. We celebrate the development of stablecoins and see them as a stepping stone to mainstream adoption of cryptocurrencies for daily use in transactions. If you'd like to get acquainted with what stablecoins are, visit our website or follow us on Twitter at Stable Report and let us know what you think. As always, if you see we're missing something, please contact us. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Nevin Freeman, founder of Reserve Protocol, a stablecoin stealth project that recently closed their first round of $5 million, counting Coinbase and Peter Thiel among its investors. Reserve has a team of 20 people, including Google and OpenAI veterans, and an advisory relationship with Patomac Global Advisors, led by former SEC Commissioner Paul Atkins. But it's a pretty stealthy startup, so we're excited to learn more about it today. Nevin, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So our first question in the stable report is always, what got you into crypto and why did you decide to create a stablecoin? Yeah, good question. Um, so I got excited about Bitcoin in, uh, I think it was 2011. Um, and that came from just reading about it on the internet, uh, it happened to be on this rationality blog called Less Wrong. Um, some people were discussing this kind of wild new idea. And it was exciting to me um, because it seemed like it presented a way to um, have, a, have a currency that would work even when government institutions were not working. Um, you know, the way I see it, it's, it's sort of like fiat currencies are, are often pretty functional, but when the government institutions that support them are non-functional, then they can break down. And I like to think about it as um, normal money kind of works via a combination of carrots and sticks, sort of positive incentives and sort of punishments that kind of keep the whole system working. And then and Bitcoin is kind of this uh, type of money that just uses carrots, right? And the idea that you can have a form of money that just uses carrots so that you don't need that government wielding the stick, well, that's really, really cool. Um, and so I, I, I also I bought some Bitcoin in 2011 as a speculator because I thought, wow, this is going to be a new form of money. I should buy it while it's cheap. Um, and I sold it all in 2012 because I became convinced that if Bitcoin were adopted, it would sort of always be deflationary or volatile, and that that wouldn't really make for a very good currency, um, which I still believe today. Um, I didn't think about the possibility that it would be treated as a store of value in the way that gold is at the time. Um, if I had thought about that, I probably wouldn't have sold it. Um, uh, but so, you know, so essentially <clears throat> I've kind of wondered over time, is there a way to create a cryptocurrency that has that property where it's supported just by carrots, not by sticks, so that it doesn't depend on functionality of governments, um, but have it, you know, maintain a stable purchasing power, and then also, you know, solve any any other problems that exist with Bitcoin that would sort of permit it to be adopted on a wide scale. And so, um, so that's kind of why you know how I got into this and why I'm interested in creating a stablecoin. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you regret selling those bitcoins in 2012. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> but there will be better opportunities. Not worry. Uh, yeah. As a Venezuelan. I like that you always mention the 16 countries with high inflation as part of your go-to market. What are your main target markets, and can you share some partnerships that you may have in the pipeline? 
Uh, yeah, good question. So um, we just spent a week in Argentina um, kind of studying the details of what's going on on the ground there. And Argentina is a really interesting case study because they have high inflation. Uh, and recently there was a pretty significant devaluation in their peso. Um, and so, you know, kind of currency issues are top of mind for many people in Argentina. Um, but it's legal for them to buy and hold U.S. dollars in Argentina, which is not true in many countries that have high inflation. Often capital controls are enforced. And so it's sort of unclear on the, from, the, from the surface whether or not Argentina is a good target market for a stable cryptocurrency or not, because um, they have dollars. They're sort of allowed to use dollars to save money. But in, in either case, it's a really interesting demonstration of a two-currency system where the thing we learned from talking to people there, and this is, you know, sort of middle income people up to more wealthy people, anyone who really has money to save, um, they save it in dollars. And so you have this very functional two currency system where um, money is almost never saved in large amounts in pesos. Uh, people store in one currency and they spend in another. And this kind of fits with our vision for what reserve would be at the beginning, which is something we call a savings currency. It's like a currency that is explicitly mostly used for savings in the way that the dollar is used in Argentina. And, you know, there's kind of this unfortunate fact, um, which is that, you know, there's a lot of people there who just don't have enough money to save it anyway. So the, the poorest people sort of in a way aren't that hurt by the inflation because they just earn money and immediately spend it. Um, and so we thought about whether there's some way we can um, create a system that will help them start tucking away small amounts of money, um, you know, sort of give them a way to save. And so, uh, you know, without going into too many of the details of our reasoning, because it gets really complicated, um, Argentina is something that we're, we're looking closely at. We're not sure if that's the best place to start or not. Um, I'm also, you know, I'm also quite interested in Venezuela. And, um, and you know, that's why I asked if we could spend some time after this call talking more about it. Um, we've been looking into it because, you know, it's kind of obviously the place in the world that could benefit from this sort of thing the most right now if we can only figure out the logistics of how to make that happen, um, you know, and I, you know, philosophically, I got into this to, um, you know, to help people store their value in a safe way and, and have a means of exchange that's globally accessible and sort of open to everyone. I'm not exactly, I'm not explicitly trying to help people break the law. Um, I think laws can be good, laws can be bad, you know, not all laws are good, not all laws are bad. So, you know, when it comes to the, the sticky issue of, well, um, you know, what, what do you do if your product is used to evade capital controls? Um, that's something that, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not able to like explicitly endorse people um, doing something that's illegal. And so there's sort of a tough question there of like, well, what does that mean about um, whether we should try to help people in Venezuela explicitly with the currency or not? But those are, those are two situations, two countries that we're looking at very closely that we think could potentially benefit a lot from this from that's, this project. That's great to hear. I can't wait to hear more about it. Um, I would love to help. Um, Precious Little has been... Oh, oh and, and, and you, sorry, you asked about partnerships. Um, yes. The answer is um, we have some early conversations going, um, you know, and, and just sort of hint at that. We're talking to big e-commerce um, people, uh, and we're also interested in um, talking to people who are doing telecoms you know, we've sort of seen this play out with M-Pesa where there's a successful mm -hmm. transition from um, right. from telecom to the sale of a digital currency. Um, so those are directions that we're exploring. I'm not able to name any of the names at this point because, you know, the things aren't 
fully inked or anything, but yeah. Nadine, very little has been revealed about the reserve protocol. From my understanding, it's a mixture between crypto collateral and senior at shares. Could you provide more detail on this? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so the basic the basic way that the reserve protocol works um, is centered around three pieces. So we have our reserve token, which is a stable coin. We have the reserve share, um, which um, you know sort of uh, sort of will will be valuable if the system is adopted. Um, and then we have the vault, which is the, the third big piece, and that's a smart contract in our protocol that stores a bunch of other crypto assets. Um, and the reason why we, we did that is that one issue we see with a lot of stablecoin designs is that sort of circularity of reasoning of, of like, well, okay, if people think the system's going to grow in the future, then they'll value this token, and so they'll be willing to trade this token for the stablecoin, and that allows us to implement a currency peg. Um, which is a neat idea, but then if people don't happen to value, you know, don't happen to believe that the system's going to grow at any given point, well, then that could come crashing down. And so the way that this is handled in a normal, you know, situation where a government is pegging their currency to another stronger currency um, is, of course, to hold foreign assets in reserve or foreign currencies in reserve. Um, and so we essentially asked ourselves, was there a way we could do that? Um, and so the way that this, this works is that the vault contains a bunch of other crypto assets. It's going to be a pretty diversified portfolio. And at the beginning, as everyone knows right now, crypto assets tend to go up and down together. So you can't really get a whole lot of meaningful diversification. We think that that's going to change over time. Um, and so we think that the, the sort of degree of over collateralization we'll need at the beginning will be something very big. And then over the course of time, it can get smaller and smaller. Um, and and so then once you have those assets in the vault, then uh, those can be used to implement a, a very direct currency peg, right? Anytime the price of the stable token is less than the desired price, um, those funds can be used in an automated way on a decentralized exchange to purchase the amount of circulation or bring the price back up. And then vice versa, if the price is higher than it should be because of increased demand, then new stable tokens can be minted and sold into circulation. And the capital that's received by the smart contract for the sale of those then goes into the vault. Um, and then there's one more piece, which is that um, we we can sell um, additional reserve shares to raise additional capital in the vault. And that's how you get that over collateralization. And then uh, the reserve share um, has a, has a way of receiving income over the course of time if the if the protocol is widely adopted. Um, and I guess I'll I'll stop there and leave those details for the forthcoming release of our white paper. Um, we want to make sure every last detail is totally nailed down before we tell the world about it so that we just avoid any confusion. Um, so what are the incentives for, for the investors or, or actually the token holders? Will, um, will you invest in money, market, securities, such as short-term T-bills or high-red corporate bonds? Or uh, what will be the benefit for, for the token holders? Yeah, so for the, for the reserve holders, where the reserve is a stable coin, um, you know, the, the goal there is just to achieve stability, um, basically equal purchasing power over time. Okay. And then for the shares, um, I guess I guess what I'll say is that the it's not the case that the, the main uh, revenue source for the shares comes from the appreciation of those assets held in the vault. Really, that vault mm -hmm. portfolio is going to be targeted mostly towards stability. Mm -hmm. um, there'll be some amount of uh, revenue generated internally to the system itself, and that's what would go to the reserve shareholders. Interesting. Um, 
In a blog post, you said that you're convinced that all of the existing stablecoin attempts are likely to fail. What makes you so confident that Reserve won't? Yeah, a uh, really good question. So, um, you know, there's, there's kind of different layers of this answer. So on, on in one sense, you know, I think that it's less likely to fail because the people that we've put together are really, really careful thinkers and and they're really, really committed to not releasing something into the wild that has us, you know, a notable risk of default. Um, so like causally, that's kind of why um, I'm more confident in our project. Um, but then in, in terms of the, um, uh, the specific sort of reason why I think our protocol itself is better, um, the way I see it, there's typically, if you look at a bunch of different stablecoin designs, there's kind of a trade-off between uh, the amount of value that you give to the shareholders, the equity holders, or the governance token holders in the system, and the amount of capital that's available for stabilizing the stablecoin. And a lot of the protocols that we're seeing these days, I think, are, are often sort of distributing a lot of that value to the investor side, you know, for obvious reasons, because they want to raise capital, they want to present a compelling investment. Um, and we think that um, it, it, we sort of hold ourselves to the standard of only allocating any value into the system to investors if we can sort of prove, um, you know, with a pretty high degree of confidence that um, the, the stable coin is going to be totally stabilized. So conceptually speaking, that's kind of the, the philosophical approach we've taken. Um, and then the third point I would mention is just that um, we spent a long time interviewing many different monetary economists, like a, I don't know, I forget, like a few dozen, I think, until we found one who actually had very sharp understanding of these things and very clear things to say. Um, both because he had a, a really good understanding of the history of currency pegs, um, and he sort of pointed us to a bunch of different things that we went and learned about. Um, but also, he, you know, has been engaging with crypto and was able to really understand our protocol and, and critique it and help us. Um, and that was something that was a very worthwhile investment to us. I think that you know a lot of the people in the crypto space um, understand cryptography um, or or understand business. Um, but don't necessarily understand monetary economics, in particular exchange rate pegs. It's kind of a, the new hot thing, and so people are starting to learn about it. Um, but a lot of people miss a bunch of the basics of monetary policy, um, and uh, in particular, like how currency boards work and how exchange rate pegs work. And we found that taking the time to learn that history and those basics was highly informative. Um, and at the risk of being verbose, I do want to add one more piece about that, because I think that it's really important for us as an industry, and so anyone listening to this, I would want them to sort of pay attention. If you, if you only learn one thing from this, pay attention to this thing. It's not about reserve at all. Um, it's, it's just thinking about how exchange rate pegs actually work. Um, and I think we kind of need to, in a hurry, as an industry, become familiar with that so that we can evaluate all these stable points and make smart decisions about what we want to support. Um, so essentially, the... If you look at the way stable or the way uh, exchange rate pegs have performed throughout history, you can kind of boil it down to two factors in order to assess whether an exchange rate peg is going to work. So factor number one is the value of the assets held in the the country's reserve account, right? So if you have an outstanding uh, supply of your currency that's worth, say, a hundred billion dollars, 
and you have 100 billion actual US dollars in your reserve account, well, then you're just totally solid. You can, you can repurchase um, whatever your currency is up to 100% of it. So there's no possible way you can have a run on the bank or a source attack. Um, um, and so the size of the reserve is one piece. But then the second piece in the framework that we developed is looking at the, the, the sort of credibility of the promise to spend those assets held in reserve to defend the pay, right? If you have that 100 billion US dollars held in your reserve account, but you actually only are willing to spend 20 billion, what's well, like just only having 20 billion in the account. And so um, we kind of held ourselves to the standard of, okay, well, there has to be a sufficient uh, value of assets held in, in the effective reserve account, and it has to be that it's a fully credible promise. And that's, that's the cool thing about a blockchain-based, you know, pegged currency, is that you just have code that implements the, the, you know, the exchange rate peg logic. Right, exactly. And so, so like with a currency board, you kind of have to trust that these humans are going to perform these open market operations and not be compromised by political incentives and so on and so forth. One of the cool things about automating it, yeah, is that it can just be pretty predictable. And so then, um, you know, the last thing to say about this is if you're looking at a different, any different stablecoin project, you can, even if they don't have a piece in the, in the protocol that holds assets that's sort of obviously a reserve, um, you can always look at uh, a system and figure out kind of what the implied reserve is. So um, to use um, an example, sort of in theory, this isn't any particular active design, but for people who are familiar with the senior is shares idea, um, where you have you know coins and shares, and anytime the price of the coin goes too low, the system just mints new shares and uses them to repurchase coins. The number of dollars or euros or whatever worth of um, of shares that people are willing to purchase at any given time before they're, they stop being willing to purchase them anymore, um, that is the effective reserve size at that moment. And so then the cool thing about that is that, um, well, cool or not cool, depending on how you think about it, is that the, the reserve size actually changes moment to moment based on market sentiment. It could be that at one moment, people would be willing to purchase $100 billion worth of shares, and then three minutes later, they're only willing to purchase 10 billion because, you know, some crazy things happen in the market. Um, and so that's, that's sort of the issue that we're trying to attack by having our vault. The vault makes it so that you can anytime look and see, okay, this is the, the, the dollar value worth of, um, worth of stable coins that can be repurchased at this time. You don't have to make a, a guess based on the sentiment of the market out there, you can just see the value of the assets held in reserve and tell for sure. Um, and so, so anyway, so that was a long-winded answer, but that kind of gives you some insight into our thinking and why we think that this is a better way to go about it that makes it more predictable and more robust. That was very solid. I'm curious, um, is Bitcoin going to be one of those uh, crypto collateral in the vault? Not initially, not yeah. initially, because we're going to build on top of Ethereum initially. And so there's some extra machinery you need to include Bitcoin. Um, but it's certainly technologically feasible, so it could be that we add it um, not too long later. Um, you mentioned that you've been sort of like on a learning journey, meeting a lot of uh, famous economists in monetary policy and with experience in, in PEG, and that sounds great also from your website as well, and there's some good reading there. And based on the, on the people and organizations that you've raised funds from, I'm curious if you could share also perhaps uh, who some of your advisors are, because it sounds fascinating. Right now, so... One advisor who has been enormously helpful is a man named Santiago Siri, um, who 
is has spoken a lot about Bitcoin in Argentina and like really understands um, on a gut level the importance of all of this. Um, and so uh, we've, he's doing you know, we've been deep in conversation with him. Santiago, he's doing Democracy Earth, correct? That's right. That's right. He's the founder of Democracy Earth. Um, and then on the economic side, um, uh, our advisor named Garrett Jones, who's with George Mason University, um, has been, he's the one I referred to before, has been tremendously helpful in uh, guiding us to you know, learn about different exchange rate peg regimes and the history of all this. Um, yeah. And then uh, the last advisor I'll mention, we have many more, but um, to keep it short, is a man named Paul Atkins, who's a former commissioner of the SEC, um, who has taken a liking to cryptocurrencies, um, you know, and, and is quite helpful in uh, discussing kind of the climate of what's happening regulation-wise, because obviously this isn't just a technical challenge. This is sort of a, a challenge of like, how do we as humanity decide how we're going to deal with this new technology? How do we make sure that it's beneficial and not harmful? And so interfacing with those government regulators is obviously a key piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Nevin, is there something else you'd like to tell our audience that we did not cover in this interview? Yes. Um, so we think that the open currency movement, as we call it, has reached a pivotal moment. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, we're kind of, entering the phase where cryptocurrency might start being used like real money. And we think that there is an enormous amount of promise in that. And we also think that there is a pretty substantial risk. Um, and so, you know, on the promise side, um, you know, there's this possibility that we can supplement these inflationary currencies all around the world. Um, and, and even beyond that, like even, even just the stability aspect, there's, you know, the way I see it, there are all these benefits to cryptocurrency where you have this truly open currency system where anyone can transact with anyone else around the world. And we haven't really gotten to test what that's like yet. Just because of this price volatility issue, you know, you could also talk about the transaction times and the fees, but um, it's like there's kind of this overhang in terms of uh, benefits that we really haven't gotten to experience. And we're about to experience those and see what is that like? Is that, is that better in the ways we thought it would be? Does it turn out to be better for other reasons that we didn't think of? Mm -hmm. But this enormous risk that I'm pointing at is that I think this could be the introduction to crypto for hundreds of millions of people. Um, and they won't be like the people who've gotten into crypto up until now. Mm -hmm. The people who've gotten in up until now are speculators. They're dealing with money right. usually that they can lose, or at least hopefully money they can lose. And, they're, they're not expecting that they will necessarily keep their money. The people who I think are going to be holding stable coins in these, um, you know, zones where inflation is high, we're talking about people who are, are dealing with money they can't afford to lose, and they're not trying to make money, they're just trying to not lose money. And so if we were to get, you know, one or two or three stable coins that gets adopted by a large population of these people, and then the exchange rate peg breaks and they lose a lot of their money, that's a much worse event than people losing some money that they were speculating with, in my opinion. Absolutely. And it's not only bad for those people um, experientially and potentially for their economy, it's, it's also bad for the overall evolution of cryptocurrency mm -hmm. because um, the, because essentially, you know, 
that's exactly the sort of financial catastrophe that would give governments pretty good reason to regulate this stuff way, way more and to say, you know, actually, we think we don't want citizens creating currencies and distributing all over the world. And I think that there is a lot that can be done with crypto that's actually quite promising and quite good. And if we sort of have a hiccup along the way, it could make it much harder for the industry to actually be able to do that. Um, so those are the, kind of the two reasons why I'm so concerned about this. And so, um, so you know, I encourage everyone who's thinking about stable coins to not just be looking for what maybe is the next Bitcoin and what should you buy, but to really think about, um, you know, what makes sense to, to bring to the world and what's going to be a, a safe bet for these people who we're trying to provide stability to. Couldn't agree more. It's the difference between a casino and developing a sustainable economy. Yeah, yeah. Thank you very much, Nevin. This was a fascinating and very rewarding conversation. And if you guys are interested in learning more about the Reserve Protocol, please check out their website at reserve.org or follow them on Twitter at Reserve Protocol. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks for having me.